bullshit as it is. In fact, there's just enough. Did you know that? There's just enough bullshit to hold things together in this country. <laughs> bullshit is the glue that binds us as a nation. Where would we be without our safe, familiar American bullshit? <laughs> Land of the free, home of the brave, the American dream. All men are equal, justice is blind, the press is free, your vote counts. <laughs> Business is honest, the good guys win, the police are on your side, God is watching you, your standard of living will never decline, and everything is gonna be just fine. The official national bullshit story. I call it the American okey-doke. Everyone. <laughs> Every one of those items is provably untrue at one level or another, but we believe them because they're pounded into our heads from the time we're children. That's what they do with that kind of thing. Pounded into the heads of kids because they know the children are much too young to be able to muster an intellectual defense against a sophisticated idea like that. And they know that up to a certain age, children believe everything their parents tell them. And as a result, they never learn to question things. Nobody questions things in this country anymore. Nobody questions anything. Everybody's too fat and happy. Everybody's got a cell phone that'll make pancakes and rub their balls <laughs> Good evening and welcome to the Dr. Zeus Film Podcast. So if it's already on the East Coast, right now it's already May 11th, and it would have been George Carlin's, oh geez. Even Kelly Carlin has said she, when COVID happened, she was kind of thankful her father wasn't here anymore because... It, it just wouldn't have happened. So today, well, well, right now I'm recording, it's May 11th. But tomorrow, May 12th, would have been George Carlin's 85th birthday. Had he had made it, many of us are like, no. Because he, of course, had inherited heart problems from his family. And also, it doesn't help that he you know, had all those heart attacks in the 70s and did a lot of cocaine. A lot. Between him and Richard Pryor, a lot. <sighs> and so that is from, let's see, that's his last special. George Carlin, It's Bad For You. Released in 2008, a couple of months before he uh, died. This was his 14th. And final HBO special in March of 2008. And then he died in June of 2008. Um, so, but yeah, the, you know how when someone, someone of that caliber dies and it's like, oh, okay, would they have made it this long? And as I said earlier, Kelly Carlin during the pandemics talked about her dad. And she said how COVID would have killed him. Because he had all of those those health issues, um, and had he lived, he would have he oh yeah around COVID he probably would have been eighty two at the time. But yeah, um, in fact, his first wife uh, Brenda Carlin died on May eleventh, nineteen ninety seven. So twenty twenty five years, and. Um, if you really want to know a lot about the Carlin family, uh, particularly Kelly Carlin, there is a really great book. 
and it I love the audiobook. I love audiobooks because well, first of all, you cannot drive and read a book. Ah, I wish we could. But with the audiobook you can listen to. I remember I would go to the gym and I would listen to A Carlin Home Companion, Growing Up with George by Kelly Carlin. And Kelly Carlin did the narration. It's about 11 hours long. And I remember I would go to the gym and I'd be on the treadmill and I'd have the headphones on. And a lot of the shit that she would talk about was hilarious. And one time I did laugh out loud and I had headphones on and people kind of looked at me and I went, oh, yeah. So you have those moments. And then um, when we could no longer go to the gym after March of 2020, I would go on these walks and just listen to her audiobook daily. In fact, I finished it. I think I finished it maybe around April or March of 2020, 2020, that infamous year. And then at the end of the year, I follow her on Twitter and I tweeted something to her and she responded. She said, thank you. I'm I'm glad that you enjoyed it because um, I said your your audiobook got me through COVID and just learning about the family because, you know, her parents are no longer here. She is the sole Carlin of that family. Her uncle, Patrick Carlin, the older brother of George Carlin. George Carlin idolized his older brother, his older brother, Patrick, died back in April at the age of 92. So, yeah, it's it's been a it's been a crazy couple of years. And I and I thought I would just talk about that as we observe. I mean, we're we're in May and <laughs> everyone is counting down. We are okay, so today is May eleventh. Ah, so next week, next Friday, the George Carlin documentary comes out. Everyone is anticipating it. I know that Kathy Griffin talked about she was going to the premiere. But for the rest of us who can't go to the premiere, it will arrive on May 20th. I believe it's a two-parter um, directed by uh, Jed Apatow and another gentleman. So here, here's the trailer. We got assholes, scumbags, jerk-offs, and gypsies. And they all vote. He was funny, he was smart, he was opinionated. I wanted to be just like him. He was just so cool. Here's the list of words you can't say all the time. You're piss fuck, cunt, cocksucker, motherfucker, and tit. And the crowd goes crazy. Chip piss fuck, cunt, cocksucker, motherfucker, and tits. They arrested me for profanity. The Supreme Court restricts the broadcast of dirty words. I'm gonna jump to it right now. He's the Beatles of comedy. I began this dream of standing in front of people and having their attention. My mother was his biggest champion. She just had a way of lifting people up and believing in them. They were comrades in arms. But then what happened was superstardom. My mom was alone all the time. She's feeling left behind. And now the drugs are there. And that really did undermine everything in our family. I did as much cocaine as there was in the immediate three-county area at that time. <laughs> he had collapsed in on himself. My career began to wane. I had to find my voice. 
1988, we were gonna go to the show to laugh at him because he was this older comic and Carlin came out with like a howitzer. Now they're thinking about banning toy guns and they're gonna keep the fucking real one! He didn't want to be that George Carlin anymore. He wanted to be a different George Carlin. What I really was, was a rebel. Can't educate our young people, can't get health care to our old people, but we can bomb the shit out of your country, all right? the hardest thing. He did the hardest thing for the longest time. He was challenging society to be better. Life is sacred? Who said so? Yeah. God? Hey, if you read history, you realize that God is one of the leading causes of death. George is still relevant. He changed comedy three or four times, and he's still talking to us. Things that he was getting at were so profound to the culture. What would you do if you were the planet trying to defend against this pesky species? Oh, viruses. They try to divide people so that they can run off with all the fucking money. Bullshit is the glue that binds us as a nation. It's the American dream, because you have to be asleep to believe it. And so, yeah, we've talked about this. It's it's basically a countdown. Um, and yes, we live in a meme culture, and George Carlin's memes are alive and well. And I love how people are just now getting it. It's like, oh, my God, he predicted the future. And those of us who remember him in the 90s are like, yeah, you weren't born yet. You know, I was explaining to someone, we were we were talking about the different generations and humor and PC culture. And, you know, George Carlin used to tour colleges. So did Jerry Seinfeld. So did a lot of comedians. But after PC culture, they just couldn't anymore because people couldn't, they couldn't take it. And I think now, in terms of where we are in the culture and, and what's funny and what's not funny and what you have to retract, but I will say, if you think about it, okay, all of, all of those really great comedians existed when social media did not that's the other thing we were talking about as I, I look at this current generation and every this is a digital book. I, I'm talking on a, an app right now. This the whole this century is a digital book. And I'm thankful that when I was in high school and when I was in my 20s, that a lot of the social media didn't exist so that I, you know. There's no paper trail. There's probably a memory trail, but there's no paper trail. And with social media, yeah, it, it can be a good thing and it can be a bad thing. And I remember when I was in my when I was in college and I had a group of, fr of friends and a few acquaintances and we would party and we would uh, we would party with a capital P. And I remember one time someone brought a camera and I said and another person said, don't take a picture of this. Because, first of all, if anything happens, we're all liable in this moment. I think because we were we were we were having fun. <laughs> That's all I can say for legality reasons. Now, let's let's get to the crux, 
the directors of this Carlin documentary are Judd Apatow and another gentleman. Michael Bonfilio. Michael Bonfilio. Thank you, Siri, for telling me that. And it's called George Carlin's American Dream. And it's called that for a reason because he says it's an American dream because you have to be awake or be asleep to realize it. He said that on many, many, many occasions. And so here we are. 2022. Oh, my God. And yeah. I think I think the consensus is out. I don't think he would have made it to 85. It, it would have been great. But then it's like, okay, because with some people, in terms of the quality of life, you know, or as he would say, is life worth losing? Is life worth living? But mainly it's about the quality of life. And had he lived into his 80s, how would his quality of life have been? And so then, then you have to take that into account because as, as I said earlier, he liked to party and he, and he really partied and he partied in such a way that what it did to his health, it accelerated because I think his father, his father was an alcoholic and his father uh, had a heart attack and drank himself to death. So okay, you've got heart, you've got heart disease in the family, you've got all of these other killer diseases, and it doesn't help that in the seventies he did a lot of cocaine, and that and that further attributed to his uh, downward spiral health wise. He was still there coherently, and he was still there cognitively, but even he was aware. In terms of what he had done to his body and what he had done to his heart. Whenever I talk to people that I know or we talk about, we'll talk about musicians, we'll talk about actors who do cocaine. And they'll say, oh, cocaine's not that bad. And then I'll say to them, well, if you do some research on it, it really is. And an example of that is you look at someone like Whitney Houston who did a lot of cocaine. A lot. And there's so much, I mean, we won't go into it because this is about George Carlin, but we're talking about cocaine right now. And there's some conjecture into how she really died. Now, the thought is that she did, she, she, she couldn't stop doing the cocaine. And she had allegedly, allegedly a heart attack while she was in the bathtub and drowned. Went under the water. So... And also, when they did her autopsy, they saw that her, her heart was badly damaged from all that cocaine. So back to George Carlin. Uh, I remember watching... Or no, I, was li I wasn't watching. I was listening to Kelly Carlin's A Carlin Home Companion. And she was talking about that. I think toward the end of the book, how in 2005, 2006 her father's health really started to go. And then 2007, he was hospitalized. And 2008, they were preparing for the end. So it was coming, and it was inevitable. So, yeah, I mean, and then, and then to top it off, he was receiving the Mark Twain Prize in humor 
and unfortunately was given it posthumously. So, and, and many people have accepted the Mark Twain Prize living, but in George's case, he wasn't. So, I want to turn to one of his contemporaries, who herself was very controversial. She she died at the age of eighty. Ag ag <laughs> died at the age of eighty one. But this was due to a routine uh, accident or uh, procedure gone wrong. You know who I'm talking about. And this is her talking about George in two thousand and eight where he was posthumously given the Mark Twain Prize in Comedy. And here we go. Where is it? All right. Here we go. I don't like words that hide the truth. I don't like words that conceal reality. I don't like euphemisms or euphemistic language. And American English is loaded with euphemisms because Americans have a lot of trouble dealing with reality. Americans have trouble facing the truth. So they invent a kind of a soft language to protect themselves from it. And it gets worse with every generation. For some reason, it just keeps getting worse. I'll give you an example of that. There's a condition in combat most people know about it. It's when a fighting person's nervous system has been stressed to its absolute peak and maximum, can't take any more input. The nervous system has either snapped or is about to snap. In the First World War, that condition was called shell shock. Simple, honest, direct language. Two syllables, shell shock. Almost sounds like the guns themselves. That was 70 years ago. Then a whole generation went by, and the Second World War came along, and we, the very same combat condition was called battle fatigue. Four syllables now. Takes a little longer to say. Doesn't seem to hurt as much. Fatigue is a nicer word than shock. Shell shock. Battle fatigue. <laughs> then we had the war in Korea in 1950. Madison Avenue was riding high by that time, and the very same combat condition was called operational exhaustion. Hey, we're up to eight syllables now. And the humanity has been squeezed completely out of the phrase. It's totally sterile now. Operational exhaustion. Sounds like something that might happen to your car. <laughs> then, of course, came the war in Vietnam, which has only been over for about 16 or 17 years. And thanks to the lies and deceit surrounding that war, I guess it's no surprise that the very same condition was called post-traumatic stress disorder still eight syllables but we've added a hyphen and the pain is completely buried under jargon post-traumatic stress disorder i'll bet you if we'd have still been calling it shell shock some of those vietnam veterans might have gotten the attention they needed at the time Few people are always funny, but certainly one of the chosen people is our next presenter, the fabulous Joan Rivers, ladies and gentlemen. Ah. First of all, I am 
I'm so thrilled to be here because I'm the only one that didn't know George. I don't know why I'm... Who the f*** was he? I don't know who he was. I don't know his work. I'll find out. Actually, of course, I knew George. I, I, I should read the... I can't read the teleprompter. Can I borrow... Can I borrow somebody's... Can I, do you have glasses? Sure, That's very kind. Thank you. <laughs> Age. Walmart. It is... <laughs> Do I look like a Jewish elephant, Cheryl? Okay. Excuse me, excuse me, I knew George very, very well, and I was thrilled when they asked me to come here today and speak about him. We met in the, uh, the 1960s in Greenwich Village, and we always used to say, let's pinpoint the day, and we couldn't, because he was high on acid, and I was just totally wasted, and... Uh, uh, <laughs> But we met, and we used to play these terrible clubs. And then those are the kind of clubs, literally, when you didn't get paid, you passed the hat, and some nights the hat would come back with a severed head. Some nights <laughs> it wouldn't come back. And all we wanted in those days, everybody wanted to be on The Tonight Show. The Tonight Show made you a star. There were three major networks, and that was it. Nowadays, there were, there were a thousand networks. So, I mean... Tonight, I was just flipping around. I mean, you see things like uh, Amish wife swapping, uh, 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 just stuff on that stupid, all the CSI, CSI Bayonne, CSI. Uh, all we all wanted in those days was to be on the Carson Show. And I was around the first time George was on the Carson Show. And the trick was, if Carson liked you, when you did your stand-up, he would then take you over and sit you down on the couch. If he took you over and stood you up, you knew you were crap. But if he sat you down and George was asked to sit down the first time, which is a big thing, and he sat down on that show over a hundred times after that. And that was an ama amazing, amazing, amazing. Uh, you know, we've all been watching clips of George, and everyone knows how brilliant he is. I mean, on stage, but do any of you realize what a six-minute shot on television, what you had to do. He honed every single word. He worked on jokes for years and years and years till he made them perfect, and then he took them and he worked on them some more. And then he would go on a couch and sit there and make it look like he just thought of it. I mean, that is so important. Now, at the start of this thing, they said, I thank you for your glasses, by the way. At the start of this thing, they, I said, they asked me to say a couple of words about George. And I kept thinking, that is so unfair. You cannot sum George Carlin up in two words. Give me at least seven. <laughs> and, and please watch with me. Watch George's first appearance that I was privileged to be a friend of his and know him then. First appearance on The Tonight Show when he did the hippy-dippy weatherman, which is so amazing. And just watch. He never missed. Do you understand? He never missed. Incredible. I thank you all so much. I'm thrilled to be here. And I thank you for these. Come and get them. George Carlin. And now with the latest in weather, here's Al Sweet, your hippy-dippy weatherman. Hey, man, what's happening? And that's Joan Rivers talking about Carlin, Joan Rivers herself, who wasn't wasn't shy of controversy. Um, 
I was looking for a clip and I found it. And this is of Kelly Carlin talking about George Carlin's view on politics and political correctness. So the political situation we have going on right oh now, th this, this pathetic, really pathetic group of candidates, uh, pretty much on all fronts, yeah. in my opinion, with Bernie being the one exception. I, I agree. Um, what, what do you think he would make of this? Now, he did he, he, I, he obviously was socially liberal, but yes. he, identi he didn't identify as a Democrat, did he? Uh, he didn't vote. Yeah, but oh, he, he didn't vote at all. But he was very progressive. Yeah. He always chose people over property. So uh, whatever candidate chose people over property, he would lean towards that. Uh, before he died, he was happy about Hillary back in 2008, that yeah. was. He was not around for the big Obama surge, and I know he would have been thrilled mm -hmm. to have seen a black president. I know he would have really been thrilled about that. And, and I got to be in Washington in November picking up his Mark Twain prize when Obama flew over. My husband and I were on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, and Obama was flew over in the helicopter to go visit George Bush in the White House for the first time. And all I could think about is, I wish my dad was here right now. Yeah. He, it would have brought a tear to his eye. Absolutely. He was a very sentimental man in that way. But, um, but yeah, but, and he saw it all as bullshit, as yeah. he said all the time. He really had a detachment to it. He didn't vote. He hadn't voted since McGovern lost in 72. I think that's when his heart really broke. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I th did, did he struggle that with that internally that that he wasn't voting yet? He was talking so much about the no, system, but he also felt the system was so broken almost that it was no, his, sort of beyond repair. His right? logic was um, that you, if you vote, you don't have the right to complain. If you vote, <laughs> wow, that's talk about flipping something on its head. Yeah, that was you know, his like because then you're part of the, the problem. Yes, completely. That was his thing, and he would he had said that a few times. I too was like. Uh, yeah. Uh, but uh, that was his stance. So, and that's where he stood with that. And, you know, he really did. He was able to compartmentalize and detach. Like I said, at home, rooting for Hillary, happy that, you know, that she was, you know, shaking things up. Mm -hmm. But on stage, he didn't, he would never talk about, you know, one way or the other. I mean, like Lewis Black, you know his politics, you right. know who he's voting for. Bill Maher, he gives money. You know, he's tried to give he's money to Bur money to Bernie on Friday. He's like, I want to give you money. You yeah. know, I can only give you fifty four hundred dollars. You're not taking any super PAC money. You know, yeah. you give a pipe bomb, you give him another million dollars. I know? mean, Bill Maher literally gave an Obama super PAC yeah. a million dollars, and it was sort of brilliant what he said because he was like, he's like, I know this sounds like I'm doing this for Obama, but I'm doing this for me because yeah. I don't want the other guy to become president. Right, and that's what he was saying Friday night too. Yeah. It was like, you know, if you don't like the fish, eat the chicken, people. But do you think as a comic, there's a risk in that because then you've shown your cards too much and that what your dad did in a, in a way by by holding a little closer i think every comic has their own approach it's it's as you know that we're all snowflakes <laughs> <laughs> yeah snowflakes everyone's got their own approach to it in their own way my dad liked being not part of it all he liked not being having no stake in it uh, so that he could emotionally detach from it. I think that's how he personally protected himself from all of it, too. Um, I personally don't think that's a healthy way to go through life. Love my dad dearly. Yeah. I, you know, my dad was like, I gave up on the species. I gave up on the planet. And I was in my uh, late 30s, early 40s at the time. And I was like, boy, gee, I hope to have 30 to 40 more years on the planet. I'm still kind <laughs> of involved in the species. Right, you, you know? need a little, a little more. And I get that, you know, evolution is slow, but I do believe in the evolution of consciousness, you know, so I try to do my little part. 
My dad, he was never an activist. He was never on the front lines, even in the Vietnam War and all that kind of stuff. I mean, he had opinions about it, but he's not a man who got involved. He, on stage, did his Act, you know, activism. Yeah, and there's probably something to be said for that, that we all in life, and I'm not just talking about comics, but everybody sort of picks very little role about how they're going to go yeah. about things. Yeah. And, and some people are going to, you know, have kids and try to teach them the right thing. And then yes. some people, like your dad, will have one child, but then but then teach a generation. Yeah, although he claimed things. he never was, although, right, was he not about changing minds. Right. You know, uh, you know, when I used to say, Ugh, please, really, bullshit, Dad. Like, come on. Oh, he changed mine. He was professorial. I mean, I mean, that's what he did. He, he, you know, he had a big stick, and he'd come out and whack us all with it and go, oh, we'd all go, oh, shit, you're right. Oh, that's right. Yeah, you and know, that, or, that's the beauty of it more than, is that I really agree. ultimately the beauty of comedy more than anything else, that when I would watch those specials, from literally from being 12 years old to being 35, that I would watch them and go, God, this is the truth. This yeah. is the truth. And I don't know how any other comic where, I mean, even as his daughter, I would feel changed in some way by each of his shows. There was something in me, some idea I had about the world had been stretched in a new way, not always a comfortably, you know, a comfortable way, you know, but something had been like, oh, a little mind expansion had gone on. And I don't know if there are other comics who do that. I mean, I'm entertained by a lot of them. Mm -hmm. um, well, it does, it does seem that something in comedy has changed where counterculture doesn't seem to be very cool anymore. Your dad, part of the coolness was he was counterculture. And yeah. right now, if you were counterculture, it really means you're sort of against, you're against the administration, so you're somehow you're against Obama. Yeah. And I think maybe because of all this political correctness stuff, there's a sense that that's not cool. So it's sort yeah. of like the death of comedy I think in there's, every way. I don't know. I think there's still a lot of independence in that. I mean, I, comics have to always, are always the outsider, no matter what. I mean, even yeah. if they vote and they give a million dollars, Bill Maher's still going to give Obama shit for shit. Right. I mean, he's still got his positions, you know, and, and Lewis Black, too, you know. And he was giving Bernie shit, Bill Maher, yeah. the other day as he was saying, I support you. Yeah, you know, and I think that really is the independent thinking and spirit of, of comedy. So... I think that is, yeah. I really do think that's alive and well. I mean, you know, I spoke about Amy Schumer earlier. When I first saw Amy Schumer three or four years ago, she was on the Roseanne roast, and I thought, oh, really, dick jokes, girl? Like, you know, we fought so hard, you know, and you're telling dick jokes? Yeah. I didn't get it. I didn't get she was playing a per persona, that she's kind of pushing up against all of this stuff, and she's doing it in her own way, too. She's counterculture in some way because she is taking, f she's really, she, uh -huh. she's, she's, a, she's a huge feminist, and yet she's taking some of it to task at the same time. And, and I like that. She makes us a little uncomfortable around that stuff. A KGYS public health service announcement. Remember, cancer cures smoking. My son's here today. I used to drive a gypsy cab in New York. You know what a gypsy cab is? Gypsy cab will go to Harlem. Gypsy cab will go to Puerto Rican neighborhood. That's what it is. We used to have a slogan on the side of the gypsy cab. Kind of funny now that I'm working with the yellow cab. The uh, slogan used to be, we will go anywhere, we are not yellow. <laughs> Get it? We are not yellow. That's no kind of a slur on the Chinese or anything like that. But I ain't afraid, uh, because I trust people. I trust people because I like them, you know? Come on, you bastard! Come on! I could tell from a block away that you was honest. I could tell by your eyes. Well, not the eyes, actually, from a block away. But I go by body language. Just your body language. You got a real honest body. 
bastard. Fill them pews, people. That's the key. Grab the little ones as well. Hook them while they're young. Kind of like the tobacco industry. Christ, if only we had their numbers. We really appreciate you seeing us this late in the day, Your Eminence. My friends and I have been traveling all night in hope of getting a chance to talk to you about the St. Michael's rededication ceremony. So you're looking to help out in some way, I take it. We'd like you to cancel the ceremony. I beg your pardon? There's going to be a world of trouble if tomorrow's ceremony goes forward as planned. Are you pro-choice? No, no. The trouble's not from us. It's from these renegade angels that have been stuck on Earth since the plagues. Um, <laughs> these guys, they think they're renegade angels. See, Padre, it goes down like this. These guys think that by passing through that archway, they can go straight to heaven. You want me to call off the ceremony for that? Who sent you? We were sent by him who is called I Am. Cute. Really cute. But come on, kids. Playtime with the Cardinal is over. Word for Moses. Stay out of this. Let's go. Your Eminence, it's not a joke. I'm telling you, man, this ceremony's a big mistake. The Catholic Church does not make mistakes. Please, what about the Church's silent consent of the slave trade? And its platform of non-involvement during the Holocaust? All right. Mistakes were made. But one can hardly hold the current incarnation of Holy Mother Church responsible for the oversights of old. Now, I'm a very important man with very important matters that demand my attention. So if you please... But tomorrow... Tomorrow goes off without a hitch. Do I make myself clear? Neither you nor any other influence short of the hand of God himself is going to keep this thing from going off without a hitch. Excuse me, when did the Mongols rule China? I don't know, I just work here. Well, you want to try the Thrifty Mart? Sure. my excellent friend. Do you know when the Mongols ruled China? Well, perhaps we could ask them. <laughs> Bill S. Preston Esquire and Ted Theodore Logan. Gentlemen, I'm here to help you with your history report. What? How? Strange things are afoot at the Circle K. And that's one hell of a trip, isn't it? And of course, you know, this is a film podcast and this is a music podcast. And those are the films that George Carlin starred in because George Carlin originally wanted to... George Carlin had a Danny Kay dream. He wanted to be like Danny Kay. He wanted to be in the movies, but then he ended up going into radio and then he became a stand-up and then, boom, 
And so whenever he was asked to do a movie, because he didn't do very many of them, of course, he played the Catholic priest, which is kind of funny, in Dogma. And then he was in Car Wash in the 70s. And Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Yeah. Keanu and uh, Alex uh, Winter. So. <laughs> and then he was also in Jersey Girl, directed by Kevin Smith. So, yeah, that's. um. I would play something from. I See, he's in. The, oh, not the mirror has two faces. He's in a Barbara Streisand film. Oh, he's in Prince of Toys, as she would say. Yeah. And so he would play these uh, unconventional roles, you know, because I think with certain characters, when you put them in a movie, you just think they're going to be their real self. But he, he ended up playing a character. He played, you know, that he was asked to do. Uh, yeah. And so here we are. 85 years of George Carlin. A maverick. A rebel. A true original. Authentic in every way. And as his daughter said, sadly, had given up on the species. He'd given up on, on the human species. Because he realized how flawed we were. And how we don't have fun and we don't research and go outside the box as he did because he went outside the box. And also Joan Rivers talking about him when he was the hippy dippy weatherman. He he toward the end didn't like being the hippy dippy weatherman because the 60s started to unfold and the counterculture started to unfold. And this is why he liked college students is because that was the counterculture and he loved what they were doing and how everything was turned upside down and therefore he started to grow his beard long and became one with the counterculture he was now at that moment in time known as the comedian of the counterculture and the counterculture loves their dirty words and those seven dirty words that you can't say on television. He is forever connected to that. And that's a proud mo moment of his, according to his family, when they had to read off those seven words because it went all the way to the Supreme Court in the 1970s. And I have a, f I have a friend, a friend of the podcast, who one time told me that whole story of how I guess um, someone who owned one of the networks was walking in New York and the radio was going and they were playing George Carlin's Seven Words. And that's what happened. That's what happened. And it was a landmark Supreme Court decision. But Rather than have me butcher it and misconstrue it. This is George talking about how it went all the way to the Supreme Court. Last clown had the seven dirty words. Seven words you can never say on television. I never called them dirty. L.A. Times started that. Uh, the third album was called Occupation Fool. And I had an extension of the seven words you can never say called Filthy Words. And I added things. I talked about 
fart. And I talked about other words that were on the edge, on the, on the uh, sort of like on the twilight zone. I talked about those words. And that piece of material, filthy words, was played on the radio in New York City on a listener-supported station, uh, uh, similar to, um, well, it was WBAI in New York, similar to um, the big ones out here, I forget, K KPFK, that kind of thing, uh, listener-supported. And um, that was played on a, a show called Lunch Bail. It was on in the afternoon, and the announcer specifically gave warnings, a couple of warnings, that we're going to play something from an album by George Carlin that has a language you may find objectionable or offensive. And we'll warn you when we play it, if you don't want to hear this sort of thing, tune it, tune, it, tune it out at that time. So they played it, they warned, and then they played it. And there was a professional moralist in the audience, someone in his car with his son who was in his teens. This man was, I don't think he was a minister, but he was part of something I think called Morals in Media, a self-appointed guardian of the public's morals, who listened to the entire piece with his son. And apparently he did not feel the son was morally corrupted by this, nor did he feel he was morally corrupted. Just other people might be morally corrupted, and his job was to protect them. So he made a complaint to the FCC, the only complaint they got. Now, New York is a big market. I'm sure there were 25, 20, 20 million, 25 million radios counting cars. Uh, at that time, not many of them were tuned to BAI, grant you, but uh, no one else objected. One complaint, they sanctioned the station. The FCC gave them a $100 fine, $100 fine, and they put a mark in your folder for when you have your license renewed, you have a bad mark against you. This, the station refused the sanction, refused the $100 fine, and they went to district court. And the district court is in Washington, D.C., and two to one, the station won the case. Freedom of speech was upheld. The FCC then went to the Supreme Court with the case. And in, uh, five years after they played it, it was played in 1973, five years after they played it, uh, the Nixon court decided five to four that it was indecent. They had found a new category of bad language because it wasn't obscene. It didn't meet the test for obscenity. It wasn't obscene. But it was indecent. They made that up. And that's now a standard. And that was my contribution. I'm just very pleased in a perverse way to be included somewhere in this, um, this American adventure. In, in the annals of the legal profession, there is on communications law, there is this footnote called uh, the seven words you can never say on television. I don't know uh, that any other comedian, a routine by any other comedian has wound up in that position, which makes me, as I say, it's a perverse sort of pride. Um, the, an, an irony for me is, is this. Uh, as my routine, as my material began to take hold, the FM and AM, the, and the seven words you can ever say until that album, Class Clown, as that be able to began to take hold, some, uh, some teachers played things in their classroom. Some teachers were fired for that. I remember seeing news stories. I probably have clippings tucked away somewhere. Uh, kids began to recite things. The hair poem was a thing that kids would recite in speech class or something. Another kid might do the disc jockey. 
I began to hear these things that were that were seeping into the schoolroom setting, the classroom. And the irony is I quit school in ninth grade and didn't give a shit about schooling. Uh, and I, I used to think to myself, because when I was in the Air Force, I took the equivalency test for high school, which I got passed in the, in the 90s percentile. And then I asked the guy, when I turned in the, 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 uh, the high school one, I didn't know the mark yet, I turned it into the guy at the base education office in the Air Force. And I said, when can I take the two-year college equivalency test? He said, well, how much schooling do you have? I said, this will be my high school here, this thing. He said, well, <laughs> he discounted the, <laughs> he said, well, let's wait and see how you did on this, you know. So I came in in the all 90 percentile, and I gave myself my high school diploma right there. I passed the college one, not quite all in the 90s, a couple of 80s, but I passed the two-year college equivalency, according to the Air Force. I mean, it doesn't count anywhere unless you want to be an officer. Uh, and I gave myself my high school diploma as of that time. And then when I began to be quoted in classrooms, not just this initial period we're talking about, but long after, when I would hear that uh, a teacher was assigning some of my things for work, or they were reading something in a class and deconstructing it or something. I gave myself my college degree. I said, that's my college degree. They're using my stuff in the classroom. And then when this thing happened with the communications law, and now it's taught in law school, this is my doctorate. So I've given myself a high school diploma, a college uh, bachelor's um, of arts, and of course a, a, a doctor's PhD. So, um, you know, I've, I've done, it's nice to, to for, for that stuff to echo through classrooms now. And I get, I, I'm in textbooks and things, and, and people who wrote about religion are quoting in a chapter head. Richard Dawkins used something of mine in a chapter head, and, 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 and other people like that, you know. And it's just, it's stunning to me that, that this, that this, it's come to that. I mean, it's, it's satisfying, it's wonderful. It doesn't make me, um, cocky or anything like that. It just makes me feel the universe is correct. It's operating correctly. That's George Carlin talking to the Museum of Television, probably 2007 or 2008, about that landmark Supreme Court decision. And then also his own education. Because I've talked about this on the show before, how he didn't he didn't go to college. He, as he just said, he gave himself his high school diploma by passing the equivalency test. Um, so, but he was very brilliant, and that knowledge, I mean, that that's that's intensity right there that we cannot discredit. Um, so I guess this is a part one of our Carlin <laughs> celebration because tomorrow, well, it's almost tomorrow, is the big enchilada. It's his actual 85th birthday. So as always, unpleasant dreams. <laughs>